Let me take you back to the summer of 1997. The Chicago Bulls were steamrolling their way to their fifth NBA title in the last seven years. Men in Black was dominating the box office and the world was stunned by the death of Princess Diana. But you don't really need to know any of that. All that matters for this podcast is that Major League Baseball was doing something really weird. For the first time ever, they were letting American League and National League teams play each other in the regular season. Chicago was more hyped about that than anywhere. From June 16th to the 18th, the White Sox hosted three games against their rivals to the north, the Cubs. They drew 42,000 fans a game, and just for comparison, the other six games on that White Sox homestand averaged only 24,000. The narrative was clear in Chicago. You had to come out to see the first games that meant anything between the Cubs and Sox since they played each other in the 1906 World Series. Sure, they had exhibitions in recent years. Wrigley Field was sold out to see Michael Jordan suit up for the Sox just three years earlier. Those games were meaningless, though. This was the first honest matchup in over 90 years, in the words of Paul Sullivan of the Chicago Tribune. It was a nice narrative, and the city was certainly electrified by it. But it wasn't true. The White Sox had played the Cubs in many meaningful games over the years. From 1903 to 1942, they did it almost every year. By the start of interleague play, those memories had mostly faded and been replaced in most people's minds by the yearly exhibitions that ran through the mid-90s. But the old city series doesn't fit in the same category as the Windy City Classic. This was a fierce rivalry between teams that really wanted to beat each other. It might be hard now to visualize a serious postseason series that doesn't fit the modern view of the playoffs, but the Chicago City Series wasn't just some fun exhibition. It was officially sanctioned and governed by the National Commission, and later the Commissioner's Office. And some of these games, though largely forgotten now, were historic at the time. The 1912 chapter of the rivalry may have been the most exciting postseason series ever played. In 1925, featured one of the all-time great pitchers duels. Record crowds came out to see the games, and a player or manager's contract for the next season may have been contingent on his performance against his crosstown rivals. In many ways, professional baseball grew up in Chicago, and each October, for baseball fans, this was the place to be. Yet some of these great stories are completely unknown by today's fans, and some haven't been told in years. I'm going to try to remedy that. I'm Terry Bonadonna. Welcome to Chicago's Civil War. Over the next 10 weeks, I'll be breaking down the history of the White Sox, the Cubs, and the rivalry that seemed to grow by the year, thanks in large part to their annual postseason clashes. On today's episode, we'll make our way through the early days of the American League and the foundation of a new professional baseball team on the south side of Chicago. Baseball historian John McMurray will join me to help break down the rise of both team and league and the rivalries that bloomed as a result. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. The city of Chicago at the start of the 20th century was vibrant, optimistic, a force of nature. In 1871, the city had been in ruins. A massive fire burned through town for three days, destroying 18,000 buildings and forever changing the landscape of the city. 300 people were killed and the damages cost Chicago over $200 million, roughly $5 billion by 2020 standards. Here was Chicago though, just 30 years later, rebuilt and thriving. Like a phoenix, the city had risen from its own ashes and was nearly reconstructed in only two years. The city pre-fire was, like most American metropolises, a wooden city, making fires inevitable. The downtown area was an inefficient amalgam of houses, offices, warehouses, and barns. 
Once the town had been leveled, Chicagoans saw a new opportunity to improve on what had been there before. They built a literal second city over the ruins of the first. Meticulous planning led downtown Chicago to become the area's preeminent business center. Now that there was suddenly a blank canvas, architects flocked to the city, erecting new, modern buildings out of steel. When they began to run out of room, Chicagoans began to build up, creating the skyscraper in the mid-1880s. In 1893, Chicago proved its full recovery from the Great Fire, hosting the world's Columbian Exposition, a coming-out party to the rest of the globe. It announced emphatically that Chicago was a world-class city, capable of exceeding the grandeur of similar events in London, Paris, and New York. The 1893 World's Fair wasn't a totally accurate view of the city, warts and all, and Chicago did have plenty of warts to hide. But the fair showcased that unflinching spirit Chicagoans had been demonstrating for years. The city's population was growing at the fastest rate of any city in human history, and by 1900, there were more than five times as many people as there had been at the time of the fire. To many Chicagoans, the question wasn't if, but when their city would surpass New York and become the nation's biggest. It was into this atmosphere that Charles Comiskey, the owner of the St. Paul Saints, decided that Chicago was ready for a second Major League Baseball team. The first Major League squad in Chicago had been around since the early 1870s. In 1876, unhappy with some of the constricting rules in the National Association, Chicago owner William Holbert created his own league, the National League, which his team, the White Stockings, came to dominate for the next decade. Okay, quick time out here. Chicago's National League squad was known as the White Stockings until roughly 1888. After that, they took on a bevy of new nicknames, including the Black Stockings, Colts, Orphans, Remnants, Nationals, Rough Riders, Rainmakers, Zephyrs, Spuds, and the one I think we all wish they had kept, the Microbes. Locals began calling them the Cubs around 1902, and even though the name never became official until 1907, to avoid confusion, I'm going to stick with the Cubs for the rest of this podcast series. And as long as I've got your attention, one more quick side note. I'm going to be mispronouncing some people's names over the upcoming weeks. Don't be mad at me. It's not intentional. It's just that it's hard to ascertain the correct pronunciation of somebody's name when he played before the invention of sound recordings. I've done my research. I'm trying my best. Bear with me. Thanks for your patience. All right, then. Where were we? Oh, yes, the National League. After its foundation in 1876, it was clearly the top league in the country, but it didn't exactly stand alone in Major League status. Its most notable challengers included the American Association, which sprung to life in 1882 and for seven years contested the NL in the original World Series. The American Association only survived for 10 years, but had a lasting legacy as several of its teams defected to the National League. The Pirates, Cardinals, Reds, and Dodgers all played in the American Association. Another notable challenger was the Players League, which lasted just one year. In 1890, the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players became the first serious attempt to form a ball players union. They attracted big stars from both the National League and the American Association and challenged the established authority of those owner-dominated leagues. The Players League even featured a team on the south side of Chicago, the Pirates, managed by 30-year-old Charlie Comiskey. When the Players League folded after just a year, though, it led to an unquestioned National League supremacy in the world of baseball for the next decade. That's when a man named Byron Bancroft Johnson entered the picture. Ban Johnson, as he was known, is perhaps the most influential man the sport has ever seen. He was a sports writer in Cincinnati who endeavored to be more. In 1893, he was named the president of the Western League, a minor circuit that featured teams scattered throughout the Midwest. Johnson was a stubborn, ambitious man just the sort who is capable of making some noise with his minor circuit. John McMurray is the chair of the Society for American Baseball Research's Dead Ball Era Committee. 
Here he is with more on Ban Johnson. Johnson had a sense of bringing people together that was very important at that kind of a time. He had he was one of those visionaries of uh, of early baseball. Uh, I guess you always need someone of who has that sort of way where they're able to to sort of see ten years ahead. He was ambitious, but he also at the same time seemed to act in baseball's interest as opposed to his own self interest. Over the last decade of the 19th century, the Western League rather quietly put itself in position to make a run at going major, while the National League was living high on the hog. With no real competition, NL Baseball started employing practices that some deemed improper. Owners had all the power and players were often mistreated by management. Chicago and baseball historian Richard Lindbergh explains. They played syndicate ball whereby one owner would own several teams at the same time. And if one of his teams was doing well, he would transfer the best players from the team that was doing poor and then move. And this was very true of the Cleveland Spiders of 1899, who lost 130 games or thereabouts. It's still an all-time record. Baseball was also starting to develop a dirty reputation. Fights broke out frequently amongst players and in the stands. Umpires became afraid to take the field at times because of how they were mistreated, and sometimes it went both ways. One umpire had eight Cleveland players arrested mid-game and another took a bat and broke both arms of a catcher who had complained too vociferously about calls. In Kansas City, there was a sign that read, Please do not shoot the umpire. He is doing the best he can. Aside from the violence both on and off the field, ballparks were a hotbed of gambling and unsavory behavior. The National League was making it clear that a baseball stadium was no place for children. Horse racing and boxing had already begun to dip in popularity for similar reasons. Baseball seemed to be following suit. In other words, the situation was ripe for a newer, cleaner league to enter the picture. Ben Johnson recognized this. In 1900, he changed the name of the Western League to the American League, and he began to relocate teams into former National League strongholds. In 1901, the American went major. The American League was kind of in the right place at the right time, and it had the right person. Uh, Ban Johnson saw the opportunities to build something that the National League at that time was not. Uh, it, the American League, at least ostensibly, was supposed to have a cleaner style of play. It was also um, was able to fill in in certain areas where the National League used to have teams, but it didn't. That's when the story circles back around to Charles Comiskey. Although, frankly, he was involved in every step along the way. Here's John McMurray again. Charles Comiskey was a, a central figure in almost everything that went on in baseball uh, for a very long time. And he was uh, just sort of an, a larger-than-life and an immense uh, figure. But he was, uh, he was one of those figures that was, that was kind of always in the background of every single major decision that was made. Ben Johnson is still the driving force behind the formation of the American League, but he at the same time was lucky to have Comiskey as a, uh, as a supporting player. It was, in fact, on Comiskey's recommendation that Ben Johnson got the presidency of the Western League in the first place. The two men were old friends from Comiskey's days as a player-manager in Cincinnati, where Johnson had been a sports writer. Johnson, in turn, had convinced Comiskey to buy the Sioux Falls Western League team and move them to St. Paul. By the turn of the century, Comiskey's footprint in baseball was already massive. As a player, he revolutionized the first base position, becoming the first man to play off the bag, the way first basemen still play now. As a manager, Comiskey won four pennants, and he was the only manager to lead an American Association team over a National League club in a World Series. And as an owner, he built a beautiful new ballpark in St. Paul, and helped Ban Johnson usher the Western League into a new era. 
Now as the American League began to see itself as a legitimate challenge to the National, Comiskey moved his St. Paul franchise to his hometown of Chicago. That move didn't go over too well on the west side of the city where Chicago already had a National League franchise in operation. James Hart, the owner of the West Side Club, sought to block Comiskey's move. He said that a new pro team in his city would be too detrimental to his team's profits, citing the National Agreement, which declared territorial rights. Now, the National Agreement was a document that stated, essentially, that the National League could do whatever they wanted, and all other leagues should just stay out of the way. Comiskey and Johnson had had enough of the NL's dominance, so they threatened to break the agreement if Hart didn't give his consent. It should also be noted that Hart was speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. Just a few years earlier, he had very publicly tried to buy a Western League team and move them to the south side of Chicago, acting as a farm club to his team. Few south side people visit the Polk Street Park, he said, referring to his own grounds. The distance is too great, and there are thousands of ball cranks in that district who would welcome a good club in their neighborhood. Now that he wasn't the one bringing that club to the neighborhood, he was strongly opposed to it. Hart met with Comiskey and Johnson to discuss terms, and in the end, Hart consented to the St. Paul squad moving to Chicago, under a few conditions. Most notably, the new American League team had to play south of 35th Street, and they could not use the word Chicago as their official team name. These stipulations were easy for Comiskey to follow, although according to Ed Hartig, the official historian of the Cubs, there was no reason for him to have to. The Cubs had no no standing whatsoever to prevent them from, from doing that. The, the north side was, was out. I mean, there, there just wasn't a call for a baseball team either. Hart also wanted the Cubs to be able to draft a player off the White Sox every year for the for the Cubs. Of course, that never happened either. Hart made a lot of claims that uh, never came to fruition, nor should they have. Comiskey also wasn't worried about not using the name Chicago. He knew the fans and newspapers would do that on their own. Instead, he made the official designation of the team the White Stockings, the same appellation employed by the National Leaguers for more than a decade. Both contemporaries and later historians seem to be split on whether this was meant as an homage to their new neighbors or as an insult, not only moving into their city, but now stealing their name. Either way, the nickname came with plenty of cachet. So did the name Comiskey. If there's one thing Chicagoans loved, it was a local boy done good, like their native son, now returning to bring a baseball team to the south side. Charles Comiskey's playing and managing career had taken him through St. Louis, Cincinnati, and at least for one year, Chicago. He had been running things in St. Paul for five years before the opportunity came to bring his team back home. The name Comiskey went far beyond the game of baseball in Chicago. Charlie's father, Honest John Comiskey, had served five terms as an alderman on the city's west side. He was a trusted advisor of Mayor Francis Sherman in the 1860s and was a very influential voice in the city. Politics in Chicago were extremely local, and officials were often elected based on their connections within their own ethnic groups. This may have been most true within the Irish community. John Comiskey had emigrated from Ireland during the Potato Famine and settled on Chicago's heavily Irish west side, quickly becoming a pillar of the community. By the time his son Charles had returned to his hometown with a baseball team in tow, many of those west side Irish Chicagoans had relocated to the south side, most notably the Bridgeport neighborhood, which happened to house the south side ballpark that Comiskey was moving into. That gave the new White Stockings a ready-made fan base. Honest John, who sadly died in January of 1900, just three months before his son's team opened in Chicago, had been a popular figure in the city for years. Now those same residents were flocking to the younger Comiskey's ballpark to support the team. According to Richard Lindbergh, Comiskey won over the public very quickly. They played in a little wooden ballpark, a cricket stadium at 39th and Wentworth called the 39th Street Grounds. 
and it was a tiny little wooden ballpark that seated comfortably maybe five or six thousand people. But they didn't count on Comiskey's determination, uh, his popularity in the community. A lot of people remembered his father. Uh, he was uh, very popular in the local media. He cultivated the press and what got wonderful support from the press. It didn't hurt that the White Stockings were winning games. In 1900, they became the first American League champions, while the Cubs finished 10 games below 500. In no time, the new Southside team was outdrawing the established Westsiders. Despite the disparity in records, Cubs boss James Hart felt his team was superior. Remember, the American League was still considered a minor circuit in 1900. All year, fans had been clamoring for a series of games between the city's two teams to determine once and for all who was best. So that August, Hart gave them what they wanted and challenged Comiskey to a best-of-seven series for city supremacy. The problem was that the two leagues were on totally different schedules. The American League season ended on September 18th, the National not until October 15th. Hart offered to play the first week in October when the Cubs had some off days, but too many White Stockings had already made fall commitments outside of Chicago and couldn't stay that long. The series couldn't happen. Still convinced that his league was better, Hart doubled down and challenged Ban Johnson to a series between the Cubs and a team of American League All-Stars, but that likewise never came to fruition. In 1901, the American League took the leap that they had been building towards for years and declared themselves a major league. To ensure that their talent backed up their major league claim, they began raiding National League rosters, convincing more than 100 players to jump leagues. At the end of the 1901 season, the White Stockings were again pennant winners, while the Cubs finished in sixth place. But it was again the National League side that issued a challenge for a city series. This time it wasn't just civic pride on the line. The challenge was personal for James Hart, who had seen the White Stockings swipe several members of his team in the player raids, including Clark Griffith, who spent the year as player manager for Comiskey's team. In fact, the Cubs had been so decimated that the local papers took to calling them the remnants, as in, all that was left after Comiskey had finished his picking. The White Stockings were also destroying the Cubs, or remnants, or orphans, or whatever, at the ticket window. They nearly doubled their rivals' attendance numbers for the season. And the war between the leagues meant that every fan the National League side lost was a serious risk not to come back. I think there was a certain affiliation with each league, that you were kind of a National League partisan or an American League partisan for the most part. You know, cities tended to grow up with an American League success or National League success and became identified with one league or the other. The owners were so keen on a series that they arranged it in July, with more than two months still remaining in the season. Players on both sides were chomping at the bit to prove themselves against the rival league. Local papers began running position-by-position comparisons to determine who would win. The American leaguers were heavy favorites. For the second straight year, though, the plans were thwarted. This time, the National League bosses stepped in to put the kibosh on a postseason series. As long as American League teams were moving into National League cities and stealing National League players, they didn't want any on-field fraternization between the two leagues. In February of 1902, Hart and Comiskey met to discuss a two-part city series for the upcoming campaign. They would play 15 games total, six in April before the regular season, and nine more after the year. This idea never got off the ground, though, as the leagues continued warring with one another. Finally, in January of 1903, at a meeting in Cincinnati, the two leagues came to an accord. The National League would forevermore recognize the American as their major league equals, albeit grudgingly. A three-person national commission was appointed to settle all contract disputes and ensure that there would be no more roster pillaging. 
The commission was made up of AL President Ban Johnson, NL President Harry Pulliam, and the supposedly neutral third party Gary Herman, president of the Cincinnati Reds. Many claimed that Herman was chosen solely for his relationship with Johnson and his willingness to side with the AL president on disputes. Whether or not that was true, there was no denying that for the next 17 years, Ban Johnson was the dominant figure in the baseball hierarchy. There was nothing in the national agreement that stipulated postseason or interleague play, but all ideas were back on the table. Herman may have had the wildest one. He proposed a 48-game round-robin between all eight teams in each league. The tournament would take place during the spring and fall, and whoever had the best record at the end of it would be declared national champion. Chicagoans had something a little more intimate in mind. For three years, they had been wanting to get a glimpse at the Cubs and the White Sox on the same field. Now it appeared inevitable. Oh, by the way, Comiskey's team was almost universally known as the White Sox by now. It was shorter, but better in newspaper headlines. In mid-May of 1903, both Chicago teams sat atop their respective leagues, and it looked for a brief moment like a season-ending city series might just be for the stakes of world champion. But the Sox hit a skid and never recovered, falling down to seventh place by season's end. The eventual pennant winners were Pittsburgh in the NL and Boston in the AL. Once it was clear that those would be the champions, Pittsburgh owner Barney Dreyfus issued a challenge. The time has come for the National League and American League to organize a World Series. It is my belief that if our clubs played a series on a best of nine basis, we could create great interest in baseball, in our leagues, and in our players. I also believe it would be a financial success. That last sentence was just an afterthought, I'm sure. Here's John McMurray. Given that we had had two leagues that in 1901 had, had gotten together, the notion that they would eventually play each other just kind of seemed to be a natural fit. You know, the leagues had had the equivalent of a truce, but at the same time, it wasn't necessarily a perfect fit because the two teams could agree on the terms of how the series would be played. It wasn't a big league-wide decision. In 1903, the two teams almost didn't come to terms. Boston's players and management disagreed about the distribution of ticket receipts and initially refused to play. Eventually, they worked it out and the series was scheduled. That left 14 other teams who had no more games planned past the 1st of October. Most teams were not making it to the postseason. It isn't like now where we have whether a third to approaching a half of the league that has the potential to uh, reach the postseason. Most cities had no postseason baseball at all. With the City Series beginning in 1903, it sort of paralleled the growth of the World Series and added a little bit of legitimacy to the American and National League. In Chicago, once peace between the leagues had cleared the way for a matchup, the series was a no-brainer. Comiskey declared in February that it would take no more than five minutes to set up the series. The details must have proved more difficult than expected, as the meeting between Comiskey and Hart lasted all of 12 minutes. Once again, they vowed to play a 15-game set. This time, all the games were scheduled for after the season. During the same time, postseason series were being set up in St. Louis between the Cardinals and the Browns in Philadelphia between the Phillies and A's, and in Ohio between Cleveland and Cincinnati. Like the World Series, they were all set up independently by the teams involved, and the series' lengths varied, but outside of Chicago, none was longer than nine games. This was an early example of a trend that would develop in the coming years, Chicago going just a little bit further in their devotion to a city championship than anyone else. Baseball in Chicago has always had a particular resonance. 
the attendance in the city series in Chicago was always the best that it was in any other city. And I think that made it especially appetizing uh, to continue it. These initial city and state series were hugely important to the local fans. This was an age before television and before radio. If you lived in Chicago, a game taking place in Pittsburgh or Boston might as well have been going on in Brazil or Antarctica or on the moon. When the season ended, fans in Major League Cities wanted more baseball, and they didn't want to be shut out of it just because their team hadn't won the pennant. In Chicago especially, a clear rivalry had already started to develop off the field between the Cubs and the White Sox. The only thing left was to see it play out on the field. In October of 1903, they finally got that chance. Next time on Chicago's Civil War, I do a whole lot of talking as I realize just how long a 15-game series really is. 15 f games. We'll take an in-depth look at the inaugural City Series and then find out why that first matchup was almost the last. Hey, you've made it through this whole episode. You might as well come back for another. For more information on Chicago's Civil War, head on over to terrybonadonna.com slash city dash series. I'll talk to you soon.